1: Welcome back and thank you so much everyone for joining us for another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. We are beyond excited and thankful and honored to have Dr. Jason Auerbach here with us today, AKA Bloody Tooth Guy. Um, We've been Insta stalking him for many years now um, and he has grown his following in an amazing way. And we think that he is just kind of an exceptional provider and shares the way that he works Um, very, very well with uh, colleagues and that he's constantly raising the bar on how to do oral surgery and how to connect with patients, how to connect with other providers um, on a social media platform. And that's really, really exciting. It's futuristic. It's the way that um, I think a lot of practices can and will continue to go in the future, but we really look up to him and we are so thankful to have you here today, Dr. Auerbach.
2: Thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks guys. I I really appreciate it. I, I really appreciate the interest and I'm excited for What's to come?
1: Yeah. Awesome. So I, I do want to give um, a, a little bit of a more thorough intro than that. So Dr. Auerbach is actually, he's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon um, who is certified by both the American Board of Oral Surgery, and Maxillofacial Surgery, and the National Dental Board of Anesthesiology. So his dual certification and expertise reflects um, and enables him to provide patients with a full range of oral and maxillofacial surgeries. So he does a lot of dental implants, advanced bone grafting, exposures of of, uh, impacted canines during ortho, wisdom teeth extractions, and a lot more. Um, He's originally born in New York, and he attended New York University's College of Dentistry, where he earned his DDS degree and graduated with honors. And then he completed the prestigious oral and maxillofacial surgery residency program at SUNY Downstate Medical Center. Am I saying that right, or should I say Sunny? Sunny. Yes. So so his belief in the importance of education and training is evident in his education to the residents at Hackensack University Medical Center, where he volunteers his time. He also is on staff at the Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and Beth Israel Medical Center in New York, New Jersey. So um, Dr. Auerbach began focusing and merging exceptional care with the patient experience to form what ultimately would become the basis for Riverside Oral Surgery. And he opened Riverside Oral Surgery in 2007 and in so doing began to realize his vision of providing the optimal patient experience through clinical excellence, compassionate care and close attention to every detail. So pretty incredible that you've been practicing that long. Pretty incredible that you've been practicing and you opened your own practice, um, Riverside Oral Surgery in 2007. Um, we want to take kind of a step back and ask what initially inspired you to consider or or pursue becoming an oral maxillofacial surgeon? Uh,
2: so, you know, I think a lot of things kind of, um, I believe that in life, a lot of things uh, happen to you. I know that there's a lot to be said about putting yourself in the right position and uh, optimizing your opportunities based on kind of optimizing who you are. But I really kind of found myself in the oral surgery uh, clinic when I was in the early stages of dental school. I went to dental school, I'm from I'm from New York. I went to undergrad at Syracuse. I, uh, I went to NYU for dental school and I went to NYU for dental school thinking I was gonna be a cosmetic dentist in Manhattan. I was gonna live this lifestyle and it was gonna be great. And I got to dental school and I realized very quickly That that really wasn't for me so uh, so much, Uh, and then I I was working for a prosthodontist in the evenings, and the the assistant that she had uh, was going into oral maxillofacial surgery, and I just remember thinking it was crazy to do so much more uh, education after formal education after uh, dental school. But I again I found myself in the oral surgery clinic. I mean I met some very very influential people to me in my life. And I found that I had an aptitude for it and a real like clear passion for it. This is before I even really understood the scope of oral maxillofacial surgery. This is when I thought oral surgery was just, you know, exodontia, taking out teeth and things like that. But, um, but I, I, felt, I fell in love with it and I had some, some real significant mentors and champions and, and they kind of pushed me through and, and I'll be forever grateful. And that's how I ended up in oral surgery.
1: That's awesome. So you kind of dipped your toe in the water because that's a part of how dental school goes and that development goes. And then you just, di- you discovered that that was a major interest of yours and you had like a deep seated, like passion to go in that direction and go further, even though you didn't think initially that much education appealed to you very much.
2: That's exactly right. I, I think like in, in anything, uh, you know, a lot of people think like, what am I going to go into? Should I be an oral surgeon? Why do you want to do that? Should I be an orthodontist? You know, people just perceive these, these professions or these subspecialties as being desirable based on either you know the amount of money you can make or lifestyle or whatever it is. But if you're not driven to do this type of stuff, it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter how much money. I know that's kind of cliche to say that. But if you don't love what you do, uh, it doesn't matter. So when people ask me, should I be an oral surgeon or should I be an orthodontist? The concept is so crazy to me because they're so different. I understand that they both essentially are at the pinnacle of, of what dentistry has to offer as far as specialty goes, um, but it's a totally different human being who's gonna be satisfied being an orthodontist uh, from the person who's gonna be satisfied being a oral maxillofacial surgeon. So I, I was very, very fortunate to have found it. It fits, my, it fits who I am. I'm like a problem solver. I wanna go in, I wanna solve the problem and I wanna move on. Um, the, the practice, the private practice of oral maxillofacial surgery enables me to kind of, uh, to fill that, that love for the business side of things, right? So that's private practice in anything. I think had I gone into any specialty, I would have figured out that part of it. But to be able to marry the two has really made my life, you know, my professional life very, very fulfilling.
1: Right. That's awesome. Do you think that a lot of providers end up on a path where they discover that like aha and they do find their true passion or do you think a lot of people on that journey kind of stick with their initial assumptions and their initial wishes like despite kind of stumbling over what might be something that they're truly passionate about like in your experience a lot of the dentists that you went to school with if they initially expected to go into ortho and then found that they're passionate about something else do you do you find a lot of people make that intentional switch to what actually might be a be- the better fit for them? Or do you think that they stick with their initial expectation and kind of the path that they thought they would be on and kind of uh, stay in that direction?
2: I would hope uh, that that people, I would hope to think, or I do, I would hope that people would actually find and follow their path. But this is bigger than dentistry. Most people, unfortunately, live a life where they are, they are doing whatever they are doing and fear switching Uh, for a thousand reasons. And some of them are completely, really, totally justified. Like they have real financial responsibilities that don't allow them to kind of take that risk Uh, or or they have uh, responsibilities to, or or a feeling of responsibility to their family that they needed to pursue such and such. But, you know, it's unfortunate. A lot of people, I'm 47 years old. Uh, I am really just, I believe, coming into my own understanding life to the degree that i do and i'm sure as i grow i will continue to understand a lot more hopefully uh but but i think that it's it's an unfortunate reality that a lot of people are in in their lives and they're kind of stuck in it and they're like they go there because their parent even dentistry in general like okay my parents want me to go to dental school because my dad was a dentist or my mother was a dentist or whatever it is now they're in dental school but they hate working with people they hate working with their hands now they have this kind of like job that's like a real actual physical labor on top of having to use your brain and run a business and all this kind of stuff it's uh it's unfortunate so i mean i think the unfortunate not to not to be redundant or beat a dead horse but i mean the unfortunate reality of life is that many many people probably the majority of people are doing things that they'd rather not be
0: doing right well, and i resonate so much with what you're saying and that's honestly kind of the catalyst for Brittany and i existing in bulletproof hygiene is we feel like we feel that same passion you know jay shetty would say we're kind of living our dharma in that like we found our niche we love it we're passionate about it like i said i love it more today than i did 25 years ago um you and i are the same age and i share that same thing it's like i've stepped into a place where like oh my gosh this is amazing and what else can i learn and how can i grow but I feel like there's a lot of hygienists that are kind of stuck in that place or stuck in those practices where they don't have autonomy and they're not able to really grow and and really feel the step into the weight of the responsibility that we get to have in really treating our patients comprehensively and helping them live their best lives. So that's, you're speaking to the choir here for sure. Yeah, I, I
2: appreciate that.
1: Absolutely. And and also I think, you know, Sharice and I and in Bulletproof, we talk a lot about like burnout and we go back to our why and like our purpose and kind of legacy type stuff and you know not to be cliche either but like you only live once kind of thing you know like what do you want your legacy to be or what what do you want at the end of it and, and what do you want every single day um in regards to fulfillment and knowing your purpose and having clear direction and collaborating with people who are kind of heading in the same direction and have similar values you know, um, I think that a lot of the providers that we see, whether it's in hygiene or dentistry, or I'm sure for you in oral surgery, who reach that like point of true burnout, you know, and for some people that happens sooner rather than later are maybe the people who, um, you know, chose to continue in a direction because there are certain expectations put on them by either their parents, like you said, or their spouse or, or even life obligations, like financial obligations and that sort of thing. But that's where I have experienced the most amount of burnout you know in regards to my life and providers around me is like when people forget about why they're doing this it isn't a deep-seated passion you know it's not something that they truly in their own knowing in their own selves it's not a place where they wanted to go so I think that that's one of the things that's one of the things that we focus on when we do on um, lecturing and teaching is like okay let's take some steps back like way before hygiene school like what's your why like what's your come from why are you doing this what is your purpose like what do you want in five ten years your life to look like and not just in regards to your earnings, you know, like that's, that can be definitely a big part of it. You know, that's not a bad thing to focus on and you know, whatever we focus on is going to grow. So it has to be a part of it, but just making sure that our intentions are firmly seated and firmly founded and that we're, we're actually intentionally going in the direction that we want to go. And it seems like just reading about your journey, like kind of that's how your journey has been developing. And I I liked one part of your bio, um, on the Riverside Oral Surgery, you know, website where it says that you began to focus on merging exceptional care with the patient experience. When I was reading that, I just thought, you know, in when you established your own practice and you wanted to merge exceptional care with the patient experience, can you tell us about like did you have a shift of perspective in yourself, or was that like a pivotal point for you or like what made you think in that direction?
2: So for, for me, there, there's so much that went on at that time of my life. Uh, for me, so it's 2007, there is a significant kind of financial situation going on in the United States. There's like a, a, a bubble and a burst and, and um, I was working in a practice that was uh, a very reputable practice, a good, a good surgeon but and did very good things as far as the patient experience but it became evident to me th- again things were changing at that time i lived six miles from new york city there was a pretty sophisticated clientele here people who expect very very high level service and care and the medical dental space was uh it was still you'd walk into the office there'd be a glass thing it's a doctor's office and like everything was very kind of obtrusive and and resistant to that kind of open communication, things were changing. Right now, you look at dental offices, exclude the concept of COVID, and it's all open and airy, and everyone wants to intermingle and all that. That wasn't the case in 2007. Um, so I started Riverside. So, so I take for granted that I'm going to provide the best patient care, period. Like, great results. I'm going to do the best I can from a surgical perspective. But how do we marry that with this what i define as the optimal patient experience and not that we always hit it but we shoot for it every single time and that starts from the pick up the first phone call i mean this is all stuff that is commonplace now right we all talk about it we all know it but in 2007 wasn't so i i was uh i was in uh, southern california i was in laguna and i was at a hotel which still is my like i love it it's uh Of course, now the name just totally escapes me. The Montage in Laguna. And I was there and my daughter, who's now 17, asked for jelly. It was like she wanted strawberry jelly. They only had grape. They didn't say that. They didn't tell us that they only had grape. They just said yes. And then they figured backstage how to make it happen. So they sent somebody like across the street to a convenience store to get the right jelly. And then suddenly the jelly appeared for my daughter. And at that moment, I was like, well, that's exactly how I want to design my practice. That I just... Yes, we make it happen and then we'll figure it out on the outs on the underside so that nobody needs to really understand how it happens. Yeah. So that was a very, very important thing for me. I was, I, I have this kind of interest, it's interesting to me. It would probably be interesting to younger, younger dentists, hygienists, whatever, who are who are maybe in a time where they're not exactly sure, they feel slighted or whatever. I was an associate for an oral surgeon. Uh, who was uh, representing to me that I was going to become a partner. And when that actually came, when it came down to it, it, it did not come to pass. So I don't want to really go into the details of it, but I was put in a position uh, in February of 2007. My second daughter was born. I had agreed and moved into the house that I'm sitting in right now, and I was without employment. So I I basically, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was put in a position, which I think oftentimes yields the most positive outcomes in the long run. I was very anxious. I I had no clue what was going on. I had a daughter, a new house and no job. And so fortunately as an old surgeon, I can pick up a bunch. I was working in nine different offices. And as I was, I started looking for real estate and doing my, you know, Networking and contacting people, and fortunately found my first little practice. Uh, not found, started. I found the location and we built it out and and uh, started. And so I was very focused as I built it from the ground up on every little detail. I'm am a true believer that um, basically attention to every detail, like just if you're tending to every single detail, it implies that you're te- you're attending to every to any detail. So a patient walks in. And the littlest thing, like the toilet paper is actually good. They they perceive, they're not thinking that, oh, the toilet paper is good. Therefore, the dentistry is good. But they know that they're in a place where like, you know, they're not, we're not cheaping out on anything. So I did it that way. And I continue to do it that way. Every office I've built since, and again, we're, we're on number 11 as of last week, um, it, it, that's what we do. We try to duplicate that. And, and I think we do a, a good job of that.
1: Wow, I I love that, and it's so true. You know the um, the way that you know the sterilization area looks, the way that the bathroom is kept, the way that first impressions go, the verbiage over the phone, like all of the little details. Yeah, you're right. I don't think that patients make a like a conscious connection, but they make a subconscious association between those things. You know, like if you care here, then you're going to care here. This is your level in the bathroom or in the you know background, the storage closet. You know, this is your your this is the way your office runs you know and and I think that it is it holds truth not just in their impression but in actual practice because if you are paying attention to those things it's it's most likely a part of your set of values like it's it's you as a human you know it's not just like oh I'm putting on a show to to make the bathroom clean like no I care I'm meticulous I care about all these details that um, overarches all of the areas of my life, including my clinical practice, including my relationships with others, including my follow-up and my, this, my, that, you know, and the way that I run my business, the way that I, uh, treat my team, you know, all of that stuff. So I think that that is incredible and incredible come from, it's something that I think that Sharice and I are really familiar with. We have incredible practice leaders, you know, and Craig Spodak and, and Dr. Peter Bolden, and they both have done a phenomenal job of, um, kind of sharing with us the same sentiments, you know, and, um, I love the example that you just gave about, you know, your daughter and the strawberry jelly, because, um, you know, wow, wow service isn't like giving patients what they expect. It's giving them the unexpected and not, and not necessarily having to say, Hey, look, look what I did. You know, look, I did, I got you the the strawberry jelly we didn't have, you know, but those things become obvious. I think the more that patients interact with a practice who is truly understanding their values truly has a deep seated culture of we care and we pay attention to detail and we'll be, be here for you. You know, long-term we, 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 It is our Dharma. We are here purposefully and intentionally, you know, so I love all of what you just said that really resonates with Sharice and I. For sure.
0: And congratulations on number 11. That is awesome. Thank you. I
2: appreciate that. I really do.
0: You
2: know, it's funny you mentioned Balden, and I think, I think I saw him on, I think it was on, it must've been Instagram, I guess. Uh, And he was talking about, you know, when you talk to people who are successful in the field um, one of two things happen, either kind of like, uh, it solidifies like, okay, I'm doing it the right way because you're doing similar things. Uh, or you you hear it and you see a light bulb and something goes off. And I think he was talking about, I hope I'm talking about the right situation. I think he was talking about uh, when a patient comes in the room, like a card with their name on it uh, that that reads, you know, the, this room has been specifically disinfected for you and all this kind of stuff. And I, I loved it. I, I, I heard it. I loved it. I, I don't even think I watched the whole video. It was like two seconds. I got a gist of what it was. I enacted it the next day. I mean, yeah. it, and it, it's amazing. So you have the card with the patient's name and this room is like a little checklist of the yeah. things. And we actually put a QR code to our website where they yeah. could see the video of what yeah. we're doing. And I got to tell you something, patients love it. And it's all because I saw that. Yeah, And it, that's part of the beauty of this social media. Like everyone should be able to raise their bar. And if everybody's bar is, is raised, it's going to cause even more like a higher level we're right. all going to get to this place where the level of care that p- patients are receiving uh, because of social media and because of like best practices or whatever, mm-hmm. it's going to be so high. And it's, it's great. It's great for patients. It's great for our profession. It's great all around. So. Yeah.
1: That's really cool. Sharissa And, and we do that too. At, I wonder I'm sure that they coll- I'm sure that they got that from each other because I didn't know that you guys did that either. That's yeah, really We cool. set
0: it out on our chair with a blanket and the sunglasses. Yeah. And we also yeah. use the QR code that takes them to where they can leave a review. And yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. Good
1: stuff, no question. It is great. I love watching the uh the 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 greats i don't know what else to call you guys like collaborate on things like that and just see like you said to continue raising the bar and continue seeing how it evolves and how you're never finished and you just continue growing and putting aside egos and things i love seeing like people who are really successful just put aside their ego and say like i have so much more to learn and that's what i'm learning in this season you know so much of my life is just like i I have so much more to learn like i'm willing to hear from almost anyone and i love like hearing about those stories
2: it's great so the collaboration is tremendous i mean there are guys Oral surgeons throughout the country, the, throughout the world, for me, um, who routinely will collaborate—not not even so much on—I cl- mean, clinical collaboration has always been a hallmark of medicine, surgery, dentistry, whatever it is. But um, but like to collaborate on best business practices, which allows you know, there's a big. It used to be like a dirty word, you know, medicine, surgery, dentistry. Sh- you shouldn't really. It's not a. Bu- it's a business, but it's not a business. Whatever it is. But I think by having a more successful business-minded concept, not remotely compromising care, you actually can provide better care uh, and to more people. You know, you said it before, Brittany. The the uh, there are so many great practitioners out there, but if they're not great with people or they're not doing the right things, that maybe it gets overlooked and they're not able to provide the care that to the people who would really benefit from it. Um, so I think that this whole social media evolution has been has been really beneficial across the board.
0: And I think it's, I agree entirely. I think we think about it from a practice standpoint, but from a patient care level too. like you're saying, patients now are realizing, oh, this is the standard of care I should be getting That's right. and really understanding the connection between the health of the mouth and the health of the body and that they want to be treated comprehensively versus just, you know, taking a tooth out and not seeing anybody for the next two years. You know, it's, it's creating that vision and that value for what they what they deserve and what they should be getting. And it's, it's awesome. Thanks for investing your time and energy into listening to Bulletproof Hygiene. Remember to click subscribe to join our community of dental professionals that embrace growth and collaboration to better yourself, your patients and our profession. For more information on our 2021 live summit, Bulletproof Hygiene book and training opportunities, download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene. I wanna ask um, Dr. Auerbach,
1: if there was a piece or a few pieces of advice that you would give to like a general dental office or specialty offices who wanna take their practice to that next level, um, what would it be?
2: Uh, So I'll speak about, so the the thing about general dentistry versus specialty dentistry, they're very, very different business models. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I were a general dentist, uh, I would really think about vertical integration in terms of provi- you know having full scope of care uh, available to patients mm-hmm. under one roof. I say that knowing that I'm dependent on the alternative model being you know yielding my success but as a general dentist and I know it's going this way to some degree, especially as DSOs right. kind of try to you know do that um, mm-hmm. I think it I think it makes sense. so I think being able to provide comprehensive care to your patients, under one roof from a general dentistry standpoint um is is the right model i mean clearly uh i do think that communication is everything i i always think about it like when i'm on an airplane if there's turbulence uh you know everyone's kind of bugging out and nobody really knows unless you're like totally chilling whatever but coming in from new york everyone's highly anxious so uh you know there's turbulence like if the if someone just got on, if the pilot just got on, was like it's a little bumpy. Don't worry about it. We're going to be good. No worries. Literally, everyone would just chill and everyone would be fine. But the silence is deafening. Mm-hmm. So I think that if if you communicate with your patient base, uh, and I think this is across any business, if you communicate with your customers, then you almost can't go wrong. No customer, or very few customers, very few patients will will fault you for something going wrong. So long as you understand, they understand and you're being honest and transparent and real and all of that. So I think communication is number one in specialty dentistry. I think communication is even more important because you're communicating with dentists, referring dentists who actually are entrusting their patient to you. They are losing revenue by giving that patient to you. And they're concerned that that patient might end up somewhere else. So I think that communication with the dentist, having an open line both ways all the time, cell phone, whatever, whatever it is, is is key. Um, And I think really, uh, really just providing the best possible care you can, like not thinking about the money. I've always said, like, always do the right thing, like every single time. If you do the right thing every single time, you can't lose. You're not if you're not if you're worried about the money and like. I gotta do this. I'm gonna try to bang out this like extra whatever or that. You you will might make another few hundred dollars, which is the mindset of the patient who comes in 50 years ago. It's like the dentist is trying to, you know, whatever. Always do the right thing, never worry about stuff. And you if you do that, and I don't mean in a karmic sense, I mean in a real like voice, internal marketing, all that kind of stuff. You do the right thing, it'll come back to you in spades for sure.
1: Right. It's definitely sustainability. When it's done that way that's what that's what i've seen and like just to speak to um i really appreciate that you just said um you know the you know the maybe the most ideal model would be kind of like the hospital model where all the specialties are under one roof and where like patient care can be streamlined by having uh inter collaboration in a chair-side manner or like on a one-to-one basis where like people actually collaborate on patient care um and gps and hygienists can talk to specialists and and a lot of it just happens under one roof because working at Spodak, we are a multi-specialty, you know, practice. We're, we're a huge multi-specialty practice. We've got oral surgery. We've got the periodontist. We have the endodontist. We do, we do prost, you know what I mean? We do sedation dentistry and all this stuff. Um, some of the things that I have seen work really, really well in that model are like continuity of care. Like what you're talking about, the communication with, between providers and from providers to patients works really well and seems to be a lot more streamlined and a lot more easy because it's not secondary information. A lot of times it's happening face-to-face, yeah. you know, with people um, and things aren't as, aren't forgotten as easily, I think. Um, and, you know, a lot of times the main benefit to patients is they're there uh, with their hygienist and maybe they need a third molar consultation and the oral surgeon happens to be here with, with downtime and they come chairside, they, they do the consultation, maybe even the evaluation, maybe they take the CBCT that day if they need to, They update the Pano. They discuss, you know, treatment options and treatment plan that day. So it streamlines the experience for the patient because they then don't have to return for a separate visit. You know, they they got a couple things done at once. Now they have a plan they can return for, and their providers just collaborated in front of them, which helps them to see that the continuity of care and they know that in the big picture they're going to be taken care of. And we're talking about them and planning for them behind the scenes, you know, face to face. So I think that for to me, it's been a really enlightening and great experience being able to work alongside specialists and having the experience of listening to them go chairside, how they educate the patients too. Like I learn, I learn all the time from our specialists when they go chairside, you know? Um, So it enables me to communicate better to the patients about realistic expectations and prep them for what they might undergo or experience when they go in for their procedure. Um, And another pro that I've seen, you know, is that when there are a lot of providers and specialists and GPs and everyone under one roof, a lot of times that means you get to share um, high dollar equipment, such as CBCTs and panos and ITEROs and 3D printers. So it might, that could, you know, cut certain long-term costs to the business aspect of things. You know, if you don't have to buy an ITERO per provider in five different practices, you know, you get to share one or two, or you don't have to buy two pano machines and you have 12 doctors and y'all use the same, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. I think that's a benefit to the practice too. But really um, the things that I've seen go wrong are usually what you just described, which is the lack of communication or, um, you know, the inconsistency in, in communication. And I can see how general providers, when they're referring out how there is a big void there, there is a big possibility that they're now losing that patient or, you know, the specialist doesn't refer them back to that GP or refers them to a different GP or Or they just make different decisions for themselves so there is maybe some fear you know around that sort of thing so i think that your communication clearly with with the providers who are referring to you is probably the best thing that is helping to continue to grow your practice continue to build rapport with them and and let patients know that even though you are in not that multi-specialty model they are being taken care of
2: yeah communication yeah I'm sorry 100 percent I think like I said, I think communication is key. I think the one uh, the one downside I've seen on having specialists in offices and again, as in if I were a general dentist, 100% I would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the one of the kind of shortcomings of the model is the sometimes the inconsistency of the availability of the specialist in the office. So if you're a busy practice like you guys have and you have the guys there on a, you know, a, a frequent basis, it's a non-issue. But if you're the guy and you have like, you have an oral surgeon coming to your office once a month uh, and there's a, some sort of complication or there's some sort of issue and your patient is being pushed off, put off so that your surgeon can see the docs, see the patient because you'd want to hold it in and. Um, those kinds of things become like the balance between, is it a business decision or is it what's right for the patient? And, and in that regard, you know, some things are better handled in a specialist's office because we have availability all the time and we have what we need at our fingertips. Uh, but I think if you're going to, if you're going to do it, and you have the patient base, the volume, and you can have someone there with frequency, then again, there's, there's no issue, but it's really important to, for the general dentist, Who's thinking about bringing a specialist? Specialist, forget oral surgeon. Any specialist um, that if a patient needs an endo, let's say, and you have an endodontist coming three weeks Tuesday, you should still send the patient to an endo. If the, you know if you don't do that level endo, you should still send the patient to to the endodontist, not just try to fill that guy's schedule if the patient right. needs the case done. You know. Right. Let it not be. No, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please go ahead. Yeah.
1: So kind of let it not be about ego and politics and more about
0: patient care. Always patient-centric. Right.
2: Every time patient-centric. Right. Yeah.
0: I have a question because I know you obviously don't work in that model and our practice doesn't either. So we send patients out obviously for endo and conventional ortho and perio and, and sometimes oral surgery when, when you know things are a little bigger than us. Um, where obviously you have the seat to kind of see those gaps in communication. So tell us where you see those and, and what you think we could do better to improve that collaboration and com, com, improve that communication when we are sending those referrals out
2: I, I really think honestly this is old school thinking. I think voice to voice is is so important I think because to, to really understand the the thinking and the mentality of the dentist or the, or, or the high, so just so you know let me I'm going to take that and then I'll go back into it. we deal with um, and I'm not trying to like butter you up, but like I recognize the importance of the hygienist in this model for many, 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 many years. I think that you guys are the absolute number one most trusted source by the patient, period. And you're in there. You're like frontline. Again, I'm not, I'm just, that's how I really feel. So we provide, we do a lot of CE with hygienists and things like that in our area, large, large things and small lunch and learns and stuff like that so that you understand what to look for, even basic oral pathology, head and neck exams, um, you know, just just not that you need basic oral pathology, but you know what I mean, certain lumps and bumps and things like that, that we see that maybe you think is something that maybe it's not something, or maybe you don't think it's something, but it should be looked at, whatever. So I think that really the, just the, the, to understand the thinking process of the person referring over is really helpful and a lot can be done through email And as much information is great and, and all of that. But to have a, to pick up the phone and be like, listen, I'm going to send this patient over. Um, and you know, any oral surgeon work there, wait is going to say, yeah, send them right over. And that's a, that should be a standard in my bit in our business and really any specialist business. Um, but basically we want to hear like what you're thinking. Oh, you know, I, I think this or I think that, and you remember we have every one of most everyone I assume has a CBCT. Not every dentist has a CBCT, so you send a patient over. And you think, ah, oh, it looks like maybe there's a root fracture or something like that, or can you do an apico on this or whatever it is? I want to understand what you're thinking so that I can look and and determine whether or not, or help determine whether or not that's a viable concept. A lot of people think, yeah, just do an apico, and then I do a CBCT, and the the root is in the sinus blown out and there's like a tremendous infection and it's really not a viable treatment plan and so just an, just an open again we're, we're saying the same thing i just it's really all about as much information communication understanding the thinking process and and that's that
0: gotcha and I think, too, I mean, obviously, I know you'd agree with this, but I think just having a really great relationship with your special t- specialist to, to kind of know each other well, know your values, know your kind of core treatment modalities, I think helps as well.
2: I mean, without, without question, it, it has to be more than about like the business of sending the patient. It, it's, it, it's so important that you have real relationships. Uh, But even not just the doctor, the whole team, you know, it's it's really it's really important that my front desk, my patient care coordinator calls your office. And when you not you, but when whoever's picking up the phone, picks up the phone, they know, like, you know, how's your kid or your mom or whatever it is that's going on? Those levels of relationships that are real. I mean, look, we all spend so much time in our professional worlds you know, those relationships are, are real relationships. I mean, and, and actually that is a testament to, to my team that, that I would say I helped build, but I have people who have like legitimately built the team. We have the 97 employees now. Um, so our team is quite large and the culture is really all about like all love, all greatness, best thing for the patient every time, have fun, do the right thing. And then they literally have relationships in, in all these offices. They go away together. And I, I think it's, I think it's great. I love it. So.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love what you just said. I think a lot of what you just said too, in regards to um, you know, we spend more time with each other at work than we do with our families at home. Like for the most part, especially I'm sure like for you being a specialist, like you, I would assume you get a lot of phone calls on weekends and going for emergencies and that sort of thing. So like you spend so much time, we spend so much time with our teams, you know, if it's not that way, I think that leads to burnout too. I think that there's this like political correctness or like this taboo, um, kind of belief that has formed about having relationships with one another, you know, outside of the workplace. But for us, we found just that like morale and, um, team culture and remembering that we're all humans and knowing intricate details about each other's lives, even if at work, isn't the place to dive into those issues, obviously like, or, or right. you know, giving patients the very best care, but like having social events where we just connect with each other as people, like to me is like one of the reasons why Sharice's practice and my practice and your practice are successful and like why we have, um, you know, not so much turnover, why we have people who stay a long time, why patients continue to come back to us and trust us. It's a lot of what happens in the relationship building that happens on a personal level like that. And what I what I just realized, actually, I just so I just visited um, bloody tooth guy this morning um, on Instagram. And I never realized in your link tree use, there's a button that says text me. So that is like, insane to me because I can only imagine like the number of text messages you get from people but that just goes to show like how important that connection is for you you know like you're connecting with people who are probably you know in a different country or around around a different state or whatever I don't know if it's all oral surgery or if it's all about different things but like I love that you're saying like just be a real human connect on a real level like this this is this will get you the furthest and will enable you to practice the best like we totally Believe that and have seen that happen like over and over and over again so it just makes me happy to hear you like corroborate that
2: yeah I, I appreciate that yeah for me you know I try I try to get to as many dms and texts and things like that as I possibly can I really do no one has ever responded on my behalf ever not once it's all me wow. um but you know it it's it's tough most of it is really positive and and to be honest really good for my ego I get a lot of like love a lot of you know really really nice things said and and that you know how i've inspired people and all this and i think that's great it's really great um but i think being available it, i think that that's so i don't know you may know this you may not know this i was totally anonymous for the first four years right so what yeah. guy, nobody really very few people knew who i was um and then like i came out and it was a whole thing and it really was like it blew my mind it was totally surreal that, that day, that experience will forever be like totally like indelibly in my brain and body because it, it made me feel like, you know, like a, like a mini dental celebrity kind of thing, right? Without sounding like a, whatever. Yeah. so, uh, but I, I think that what, ha- what made it uh, so successful, if you will, is that it really is me, like totally authentically me that, 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 You know, I've thought about like having people post for me. I've thought about like hiring, like really, I've thought deeply about this whole thing. But the voice is, I don't mean the actual voice, though that too, the voice is mine. So every post I've written, so sometimes I like feel like I'm not into posting. So I maybe go a week and I don't post. Sometimes I'm like really busy or uninspired or whatever it is, um, or pissed about the fact that I have all these sensitive, t- like, you know, it's real, it's me, really. So it comes through. And I think that that's appreciated by the audience, literally worldwide, yeah. all over the world, which is nuts to me. I mean, I've been invited to all, to, I don't know, like 40 countries to speak and this and that. I'm actually, as COVID hopefully really goes away, uh, I really am going to take advantage of them because I'm going to, I don't want to like, like, see all these people and go and do stuff. Not that I'm a one to do lectures. I'm much uh, more comfortable with like a and a concept, but I'll go and we'll see what happens.
1: So I, you just actually answered one of the questions that we had uh, later on. we were going to ask how long were you doing bloody tooth guy before you released your identity? What made, what made you remain anonymous initially? Like what made you start that way?
2: I think not knowing. So I started in 2015, 2015, um, that was a different time for Instagram and it was a different time for social media and the world. So in 2015, I posted my first couple of pictures of bloody teeth and it was really just, if you look, I've kept every single post, basically every single post up. Mm -hmm. If you look back, it's just pictures of bloody teeth. And then I kind of was like, Oh, let's get a little artistic. So I started posting like what I perceived as aesthetically pleasing pictures of bloody teeth. Uh, (laughs) And then video became a thing on Instagram, which it wasn't in the beginning, and so I did that. And then stories and, and whatever it was. So, but to answer your question, I was anonymous because I really didn't know about like the HIPAA association with this kind of stuff. I really just didn't know right. what, what was allowed or what wasn't allowed. There's was never really been anything on my, on my uh, account that has uh, been identifiable. As for a person and I get consent for everybody. But the fact is, is like, I didn't know. So I remained anonymous. Plus I didn't want it used against me um, by my competitors. So there are, you know, like I don't want to think in those terms so much, but you know, you have to sometimes. So some people like to talk a lot of shit and then the more they see you rise, the more they try to bring you down. So I was trying to protect my reputation in that way. And then look how the world mind shifted and it's like, Everyone wants to be on social media and kind of a, again, I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, but, and like become a celebrity and whatever. So people went from maybe not understanding it completely to fully wanting to be involved. To Like right. they everyone's like, come in. Did you put my tooth on there? Do whatever it is. So now my patients know that I'm many of my patients know that I'm bloody tooth guy mm-hmm. and the kids, like the wisdom tooth kids, they all like they all wanted it. I do an exposure. The kid I like shake the chain to to test the bond. I literally will get a text from the mom like, "Did you put this kid's tooth on that thing?" And so, uh, so that I was anonymous. Now I'm not, and that that's the story of the anonymity
1: so that that those are all things that i think we wonder about too about the hipaa and you've always protected patient information you know like everything on your page like you you can't see the person you give no like identifiable information at all so um but i i think the same thing and i also think about like okay if something goes wrong you know during this procedure or something like and and you've posted things that like haven't gone ideally and you're like oh this is how i dealt with this or like you know whatever like that to me i'm just like oh gosh is there any like liability in regards to that but I guess the reality is like if something didn't go ideally it didn't go ideally and you have to troubleshoot it anyway like it doesn't matter if people are watching or not is that kind of your sentiment
2: yeah for sure um, so I, I a lot of people do a lot of editing on their stories and do videos and then edit and then post it I', I never do that I, I literally what you're if you're watching me do a story it's happening live I mean it really is happening live not that the entire thing is being recorded with one button, but it's like this and then that. I mean, it's happening at the moment. So yeah, of course, some, sometimes things don't go right. Sometimes I've thought about the potential positive of that. So if something if something goes, let's say a little bit differently and you have a video recording of it and it yields some sort of a kind of like negative outcome, like God forbid, paresthesia or something like that, yeah you have video documented evidence that you didn't do anything outside of the standard of care and that this just kind of occurred. And right. thank God it's never gone that way. I've never had to, I've never, nothing, but, but I mean, everything I do is totally within the appropriate standard of care, right. no, nothing out of it. So if there is a, if there is a, a, a negative outcome, which there are in surgery, dentistry, well, everything that we do, um, I'll show you. I didn't do anything, you know, like this is right. what I did. And I don't practice thinking about defensive. Like I'm right. a lot of people are like, you could be sued for that. I, I don't, I never think about that. Uh, I always think about just do the right thing. And again, that communication piece, and you don't really have to worry about that stuff. You know? Right. So,
0: you and know. I think there's a lot of value in seeing when it goes wrong, seeing if that happens to someone else, seeing how they managed it. I think that goes along with your core value of just being who you are and being authentic. I think that's really important. Um, you know, I think it's sometimes hard for people to relate and resonate if they see like this perfect view of how everything is. I think it just makes you more real and it probably promotes more people reaching out to you to say, Hey man, I, I saw that happened and I've had that happen to me and I loved watching what you did with it. Or what would you do in this case? Like, I, I just think it builds more of the, the value.
2: I, I, I agree. I appreciate that. I think it's like one of those things like vulnerability, like if you, sh- if you try to be perfect Everyone curates their image on social. Most people will try to curate their image on social media. And of course, you know, like if I take a picture of myself and I look fatter versus like I could take it from a better angle and maybe look better, I'm going to put the latter. But at the same time, like, um, like you got to show the real. The, it, the real is really what, what's like great. Thankfully, most of my real also yields great. You know, it's great. Like the outcomes are great. The procedures go well, all that stuff but not all the time, so.
1: I, I wanna ask you about something specific, actually. I saw recently, I, well, I'm 99% sure that it was you, um, who you were trying to use filler in an interdental papilla, is that it. right? Yep. Yeah, so there was a dental procedure done and then the papilla was injured or something and it, there was, a um, it had a good contact, but it had an embrasure, like a gingival embrasure, I guess. And how, yeah. did, how, what was the outcome of that or how did so, that
2: end So I had never, done that before. The pa- I had spoken to the patient about it. She was totally all about it. She, she had uh, gone for a filling uh, and, and I, she blames the Toffelmeyer band for mm. uh, affecting the papilla. And you know, I, I, so maybe, I don't, you know, I really haven't put a Toffelmeyer band in since like 1998. Right. So I don't even really know. But I will say that she did have an area there, food and and whatever, so we used a filler. I actually, I was questioning like which filler to use. So I called uh, the tooth booth. I don't know if you yes. know her. Yes. I love her. She's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, you know, which one will you use? She gave me the information. I bought it. I used it. The patient feels better. She's like, yeah, I'm not getting food caught there now anymore. Now, I, I don't know how long it will last, yeah. but it it worked on her. <laughs> The patient knew it was like a little bit, not experimental, but it was like off, off label and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. She was down with it. I tried it. It wasn't, it's not like a complex procedure. Um, and it it worked out well. It really did. And again, I, my, my set of, of my N is one. So I don't, I don't have like a real, like any kind of (laughs) research on it, but, but, uh, it definitely, it, it definitely worked for her. So she's right. If
1: there's no RCTs on this yet. it's not peer reviewed.
2: Right. Exactly. But exactly. but
1: N one. It's going right. well. Right. That's cool though. That was really cool. I thought that
0: that was very interesting.
2: Like they got a lot of I got a lot of feedback actually. They got a lot of love.
0: Since we're all in the, so go ahead. Sorry. I'm gonna say after this conversation thus far, I'm kind of sad that I don't live closer to New York because I would totally love to do like a lunch and learn that you guys put on. So, in that direction, I want to ask: What do you feel like are the most common things that we, as hygienists or general providers, miss um, when when we refer people to you?
2: Uh, what do you miss? I, I don't know. I really don't know that you're missing so much. I do think a lot of time with a lot of dentists, there is um, kind of this thing like sometimes some dentists are afraid to tell their patients that they need procedures done. You know, that's just a fact of the matter. Um, And so things will occur and things will build up and typically on like endodontically treated teeth and things that just are like, it's not hurting the patient. There's clearly something going on there. And then ultimately like a Sunday afternoon, now they're swollen. So I think that, I think that there's a, the hesitancy on the part of a lot of dentists to, to tell their patients, I think maybe because they don't want to upset the pay- I don't really understand the psychology of it completely to some degree. I think I do, but um, I think, I think what I have found is, and I think hygienists are better at it than dentists. You guys will always point it out and you guys will always tell the dentist and whether or not the dentist say like, oh, let's watch it. You know, like the, the, the watching of things in dentistry goes against everything that we know about disease progression and infection and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think just watching stuff, And I do totally credit. You guys will point good hygienists are on top of stuff like you guys are all like crazy attention to detail humans. Not all, of course, but you know what I mean, as a general rule. And so finding these little things and just kind of like impressing upon the dentist, like maybe you should look at this or whatever. I think that's that's kind of the thing.
1: So we we totally, totally agree. Like there are so many fears and the psychology, I think, behind not wanting to deliver bad news, even when it's true in dentistry, I think has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of problematic things are asymptomatic. So patients aren't coming in like, oh, I think I have perio disease. You know, they come in and then we take measurements of their gums and we're like, oh, you have perio disease. And then we have to explain it and go through all the evidence of the fact that they have perio disease, you know? So I think, you know, some of just in hygiene, some of the questions or the pushback or or the difficulty that we have in regards to uh, educating patients about their current health or disease status is, well, I've never heard this before. Well, why doesn't it hurt? Well, Well, I went to a dentist six months ago and they didn't tell me this, you know? And it's because I think that it's, there is a fear of losing business because you're delivering bad news. There's a fear of not being believed. There's a fear of, you know, not being liked even I think, because uh, I think that people in general, I think that this dynamic and this paradigm is shifting now, but in general, I think that people, patients and providers, maybe to some extent have thought of like medicine as its own specialty and then dentistry and like eye doctors as like their own, like, Oh, that's, in excess you know if you can then you do those kind of like niche things you know not as like all a part of the body so I think it's it seems to the public to be like an optional service almost right. you know what I mean so they're afraid that they're going to say no or they're going to say oh well so-and-so is trying to sell me and I didn't have pain but that goes that it rolls back to what we've been talking about this whole time and that's just excellent um communication and really clear communication and documentation you know because some you know, there's always a percentage of patients who are gonna say yes almost no matter what. There's a percentage of patients who are almost always gonna say no no matter what. And then there's that middle ground where the patients are gonna make a decision based on the evidence and the information that you're giving them. And it, it depends on how well you're educating them and how well you're communicating their current health or disease status, you know. So I think that there's that dynamic and there's just fear revolved involved in that. And there is always like, oh, there's a practice down the street where, you know, if I diagnose co-diagnosed perio and like, okay, this person needs non-surgical periotherapy. Um, it's, it's mild to, to moderate, you know, they don't need surgical intervention at all yet, but the person hasn't had pain. They've never heard this before, go through all the evidence. You know, I know that they can go down the street and someone will do a profy on them. Right. You know, so I think that there's a fear of losing business, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, it just has to be like uncompromised, uncompromised. And the more that, the more that more practices are not compromising on their treatment standards and not letting fear of being disliked or losing business stop them from communicating to patients the problems that they have, I think the better it's gonna be for everyone. You know, The more that everyone's doing it, the better it's gonna be for everyone, including, definitely including the patient.
2: Yeah, well, I think that there's definitely a, a paradigm shift in the mindset of the patient in terms of oral healthcare as being really very, very important, which I think is great, again, for us. Um, And for the patients, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also think that with experience comes a confidence and, 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 and people, you know, when I was, I finished training, I was a kid, I was 20, kid. I was 29 years old. Um, I finished oral maxillofacial surgery training at 29. I was fully practicing at 29 Mm -hmm. and I would walk into the room and I would not be totally confident in myself. I had always in the back of the mind, I look like a kid. People aren't really going to believe me. It takes time Mm -hmm. uh, for you to really like the fake it before you make it kind of thing where you're like, you almost don't realize people are actually coming to you for your professional uh, expertise. You don't realize that at first. At first, like, think you're like still practicing kind of. Um, And I think that as you become more confident, it comes through. I mean, when I talk to a patient, if I, you know, I tell them, I, I used to be like, well, give, of course, give the patient their options, but you know what the best thing is for the patient. Right. So that's why they're coming to you. So I tell my patients like, yeah, of course you can do this, 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 and this, but this is what I would do. This is really how I would treat my mother or my daughter or my right. wife or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. so it, like that direct, and again, in my market where I live and work and whatever, being direct is like, you know, this is, this, this is like what it is here. So, but I don't know that that works in every area. But for me, I'm just very much like, yeah, so you're taking out tooth number five, assuming you're going to replace tooth number five. So this is what you should do. It's not like, well, you could graft or maybe you could have a denture or you could have a bridge. Whatever. No, you're going to take out your tooth. You're going to want a new tooth. I mean, you're, of course, there's not right. even a question. Right. So uh, that's kind of the way that, What basically what I'm saying is, as you go on in your profession, you become much more confident that comes through patients understand that and it's less of a of a cell that it's more of a just like a directive and that's that's kind of what it
1: is right and i think and i think that is very much you know northeast i think that a lot of northeasterners do like communicating very directly like that but i i found like i mean in south florida it's the same you know like we when we communicate directly like that like this is exactly what you just said like this is what would do for our aunt or our mom like I'm giving you the same treatment and the same recommendations as I would in the same order as I would this this person that I love and care about I think that patients take that really well I want to touch on I want to go back to what you said about um, uh, watching watching things like providers putting a watch on something Um, because we just did a a podcast episode about um, being quote-unquote conservative versus quote unquote aggressive and how people kind of tend to wear those things as badges of honor too. like, Oh, that's such an aggressive treatment plan. Like, is it, or are you just treating early disease instead of watching it? Like is, is, is using the mildest approach, which is all that's necessary. If it's early disease, is that really aggressive or is that just preventing more advanced disease and keeping the patient from needing a dental implant or needing, you know? And I think that we get stopped up sometimes with like, I I think it, it might be multifaceted, but I think that one end of it is like, we've seen the worst of the worst. And sometimes we compare like, oh, this mild problem is just, it's just a little problem. So I'm going to compare it with like that severe problem that I saw over there, you know, and in, in our minds, and I'm just generalizing here. I don't, you know, maybe not, maybe this is a me thing, but like, I think generally we tend to think this way, you know, like, oh, this is just like really mild early period. You know, we're just going to watch that perio. Like, what's it going to, we're going to watch it decline. Then we're going to send you to a specialist in three years and you're going to have mobility and and like you know, so I think it goes back to our why and keeping the patient informed and, and continuing to communicate and telling the truth and letting the patient choose because at the end of the day, they have their own autonomy. They do have a right to choose. You know, if, we, if we're if we confident in coming in, presenting the best treatment options first and then alternate treatment options afterwards and saying you also can do nothing and this is what will happen if you choose to do that, like you really can't go wrong. You know, I think we, we really in presenting the very best treatment and providing the very best care need to start losing the fear of the patient leaving of the patient being upset of the patient not liking the information because we don't ha- you don't have to deliver information in a way that is traumatic or rude or unca- uncaring you can deliver like hard to deliver information in a way that is caring and considerate and compassionate and you know and not lose your humanity in the process you know
2: for sure, for sure. yeah I, I mean i think that sometimes and I put it this way sometimes, sometimes what what appears to be aggressive is actually the most conservative, right? So, yeah. I mean, I think you just, you said it perfectly. You know, I have patients come in and they're like, they have a hundred loose or decayed teeth or whatever it is, and they want like that one tooth addressed. And yeah, I can do that. But actually in my early career, I probably would have done more of that. Nowadays, I really just kind of stand firm and like I won't treat a tooth, like I won't even put an implant into a tooth That has an endodontic uh, lesion on the adjacent tooth like no i just won't do it so if you want me to do this which i will you need to address this situation here whatever it is and again i think that i have the luxury of doing that because i i've developed you know i've been thankfully successful professionally so but like the younger people out there a don't necessarily know like why the implant wouldn't be successful next to a tooth that has an endodontic lesion Mm -hmm. Uh, they also don't necessarily have the the luxury of, of being able to turn patients away um, who who are un, who you can't kind of shift their mindset. I, I pride myself on being able to educate the patient very well generally. And most patients, uh, acquiesce is the wrong word, but most pa- patients understand when I'm done speaking to them the importance of what I'm suggesting and why. Uh, but again, I think that sometimes it comes across aggressive, but if you preface it by saying, listen, I know this is gonna sound aggressive, but this is why, and you know most patients many patients will accept it
1: yeah or, or i know this wasn't what you were expecting today
2: right oh like, yeah that's was, a... wasn't
1: what you were expecting to hear but i but i haven't an, like an ethical obligation i've got to tell you what's going on here that's you right. know yeah, yeah for people sure. appreciate that for sure. um and i think i want to go back teresa to a question that you asked earlier about like what hygienists or dentists when we're referring to you miss because i think a part of that is like When I'm thinking of that, if we were, let's say we do refer someone to you for an implant consultation, potential like grafting, you know, implant, whatever, sinus lift, whatever it is. Um, How many times in an appointment like that, would you say that you find like an oral cancer lesion or something that they were not referred for? Like, does that happen a whole lot? Like, what are we missing in regards to that? Or does it really not happen very often?
2: Typically not. It it, it typically, thankfully, typically not. Uh, the 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 prevalence of lesions that are, are precancerous or cancerous, even in our world and especially South Florida, um, you have an older population. Younger people, especially now, moving down there, especially into the Delray Boca area, um, but but the fact is, is you have an older population, so you definitely need to kind of keep a lookout. But okay. no, I think you guys, I really do think it actually is the other way. Most of the time we're referred a lesion, the lesion doesn't even bear like mentioning to us. Uh, And again, that's because we see so many of them. Uh, So I think that, no, I think in general, you guys and general dentists do a very, very good job of picking up things because even if, because sometimes something is kind of within normal limits but because you don't see a zillion of them, you you perceive it as being a little bit out of the norm and you refer that and i think that's great i right. think you know to kind of talk about like one other thing about what you could do to to make the referral experience easier better whatever is so sometimes a patient will come in with a broken tooth or something like that and the dentist will be, go go get go see the oral surgeon to have that tooth extracted there's no like teeing up of the patient in terms of he also or you know you also may need the replacement of that tooth so think about how you want to do that cuz sometimes i'll be like they'll be like no i just want to take the tooth out today my dentist said i just need the tooth out and i and i struggle with that cuz i don't want to make the dentist wrong right. but you know it makes sense to graft or it makes sense to do an immediate implant or whatever so i think just kind of like speaking to every potential eventuality like if you're taking out an upper molar you could need a a sinus lift. So, you know, I always speak to that. I always say I'm going to extract the tooth. I'm going to do some bone grafting today. If we have this, 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 and that we'll be able to put the implant in in three months. If not, we may need to do some extra grafting, your sinus is close, whatever it is. So it's just a matter of like, they've heard it. And so you can refer back to that and the same thing with the referral. So if, if we get a referral and the patient's been told like, Oh, he's going to build up the bone for the implant, or he's going to put potentially put an implant in if he can, It's just the patients heard that from their trusted source, you or the dentist. And then when they come to us, they're not thinking like we're trying to sell them or something like that.
0: Right. I I have a follow-up question to talking about the, you know, abnormal soft tissue lesions. Um, I know for our practice, we, you know, we do our visual, we do, we use the Velscope light once a year. And just in using that for several years, there's times now I've learned, like I'll see something, I'm like, "Mm, I think that's trauma. Let's give that two weeks. I want to see. You come back to me in two weeks. Let's see what it looks like. My guess is it's going to be gone. But if it's still there, then we'll refer you out. Um, so with that kind of mentality, what what do you recommend when we see abnormal presentation for follow up? What what do you recommend on that front?
2: I think I think the two week n- number is like literally dead on from a scientific okay. perspective. Okay. You know, it takes that long for epithelial turnover. Uh, so if if in fact it was traumatic or even if it's like a chronic irritation, you're going to look at it and if they come back in two weeks, if it's gone, you're done. If it, if they come back in two weeks and it's still like questionable, there's no downside in referring. Even if you perceive that it's related to some sort of like habitual or chronic irritation kind of thing, obviously, you know, if it's a sharp cusp or a filling or something like that restoration, that's something that could be handled. But if it's even remotely questionable, there is, there's no downside ever to referring the patient to have a set of eyes who see it who that set of eyes sees it a lot there's no downside whatsoever i mean maybe the patient doesn't want to want it or whatever but that's actually an example if you have a surgeon coming in on a regular basis um you know have the surgeon take a look in your office documented appropriately and and you know move on one thing that you can do is what you probably do do is measure it right so you know if you're measuring you have
0: the probe up next to it yeah
2: exactly as you measure you have a you have a photo you know what it looks like and you can make a like an objective
0: right
2: comparison at some later date
1: description right so i i think for me and probably a lot of hygienists like i know that my education about lesions like we had to take oral and general pathology obviously but the I'm sure that the extent of that is nowhere near what you, you know, had to take and what you've seen and experienced. And you've done like thousands of biopsies and, you know, whatever at this point, like for me, I am like paranoid and you're right. Like the perfectionist thing about like, okay, what if I do not refer? And this was actually something pathologic in this instance, like even things like hematomas and fibromas make me nervous, even if I know that that's what it is, because I'm like, yeah, but it's a lesion and I don't have the education, you know, to completely rule this out. And usually that's when we get the GP involved, you know, and, and they can make that determination as to whether or not to refer. And of course we don't, we don't wanna refer and waste anyone's time either. We don't wanna be referring arbitrarily and just like, oh, there's a, this area, the patient has, you know, um, uh, hypercaritinized tissue on their tongue. Like let's refer them straight to the oral surgeon. Like, but I think that, aren't there instances too where like dysplastic tissue can become like pathologic? Like if, if something is, starts out as like a traumatic lesion, can it kind of change into something that is pathologic and should be treated or excised or not usually?
2: Uh, yes, um, chronic insult can yield change in cell type for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest issue with oral lesions, mucosal lesions in general, is that a, the visual description of it does not necessarily correlate with the histologic issue. Right. So, you know, there's this term called leukoplakia, right? And people in training or in school or in whatever learn leukoplakia is like a diagnosis. All leukoplakia, is, I know that White have probably heard this. It's just a descriptive, right? It means white patch. So if you cut into a thousand white patches and you take a biopsy, some of them are just going to be hyperkeratosis. Mm -hmm. a callus some of them are going to be mildly dysplastic some of them are going to be carcinoma Mm -hmm. so you you need to really you really need to be in those cases really like concerned not you shouldn't be really concerned meaning you should definitely look at look to those lesions as being potentially concerning especially Mm -hmm. if they're in areas that are concerning ventral tongue lateral tongue you know, certain areas back in the retromolar pad, certain areas are uh, more likely to be concerning than other areas. And so I think it's important that if you see something like that, if you see something, say something, there's no downside. There's, there's no, what's the downside? So the dentist says, oh, it's nothing. You know how many times we've seen cases where the tooth extraction happens and, and it, they thought it was just like some sort of like periodontal issue. So the dentist takes out the tooth and then closes it and then five weeks later, six weeks later, it's still not healed. And they, they keep trying to debride it and clean it out, whatever it is. And now this person has this fungating lesion in the soft tissue and it turns out it's squamous cell carcinoma of the gingival tissue into the bone, invasive. And now you have, and this is legitimate stuff. And so now you have a guy who's trying to do his best job, right, he took out a tooth, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't clear. But then it's like, it didn't heal. It didn't heal. They're trying to manage it. They don't want to piss off the patient. They're a little concerned, but they don't really know any better. And then now eventually the patient gets to the oral surgeon and it's like, it's real. So I don't even, I don't really treat oral maxillofacial surgery, oral maxillofacial cancer. Um, I do small lesions and things like that, but I have a partner who's American Head and Neck Society trained, microvascular trained, like can take your leg and suture it to your face and and all of that. so he he does all that type of stuff for us. But I mean, that type of stuff is real. It's real. Yeah. So you you can't be too careful. And I'm not I'm not an alarmist. I'm not saying like that, it's not a thing. I mean it's a thing, but it's not so much a thing. But you just want you just want to be careful. If you see something and it, it like raises suspicion and you guys are experienced in doing what you're doing, then tell somebody. There's there's no there's no downside. Yeah.
0: I feel like I have seen a lot in the last probably two years, more and more um, internal resorption of teeth. Have you, have you seen that as well? And what do you think's going on there?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I don't really know exactly why I, I have, a, I, I agree with you. I think there's do not, know if there's an uptick or maybe there's we're just more, we're seeing it more because of CBCT. Um, but, but I do think that, look, I mean, I, I see it a lot. What do I think about it? I, I, you know, I have, a, I have an endodontist that I work with in Manhattan um, who is, I have many endodontists that I work with that are fantastic, but I have one in specific in Manhattan and we work together quite frequently on cases that are a little bit more challenging and we treat them and he'll treat them. I mean, I don't treat them. He'll treat them uh, and, and patients do well. Most patients when they have internal resorption, don't feel anything. Right. They're, they're, they're totally asymptomatic. And they're like, what? You want me to take out my tooth? That looks perfect but I'm like, look, there's a big, like dark hole in your tooth. But, uh, so they're willing to say, listen, I'm going to give it a chance. And if they do give it a chance and it works, they're happy. If not, you've given it the best chance. Again, most patients, so long as you explain the situation, they they're, they're good with it. Yeah.
1: So my husband actually, sorry, I, I have to, I have to add this anecdote. My husband actually, um, just had external resorption on uh, 23 and 24, had the teeth extracted. He had, he had prior uh, trauma to this area, he got hit and jaw surgery, broke his jaws. So he had some hardware, um, a severe like bony defect there from, you know, 23 and 24 were lingualized, you know, and then like were uprighted and kind of um, meddled into place Um, that was many, many years ago, but he actually recently needed them extracted. It was extensive enough. Uh, It broke in half actually subgingively. One of them did, I think it was 23. He had um, 23 and 24 extracted. He had, uh, I guess, site preservation. And then he just had um, guided bone regeneration in in this area, you know, from um, canine to canine almost. So he's like undergoing this process. So it's interesting to see too, how quickly his resorption, you know, it was kind of like static for 10 years, didn't change very much. And then it like blew up, you know, pretty much overnight, like blew up and and the teeth were clearly not going to not making it. So it is, it's very interesting. Um, I've seen some of that too, but like at at what point, so are, do you just tell patients like, okay, it's asymptomatic, it's not bothering you. We, this is your option. We can watch that until it does bother you or like,
2: some patients, but yeah. but um, I, again, I'm not really one for watching things. Right, right, right. You know, I, I do think that you can argue with internal. So I also think, and I didn't comment on this, just to I'll go back to that. Um, I think that, and I don't know, I'm Not this is not like scientific at all, but mm-hmm. I question as to whether some of these, so I do think we're seeing it more because of the CBCTs, but I wonder if it's occurring more because of this early Orthodontics and then like staged orthodontics. I just wonder out loud again, no zero science, mm-hmm. just a question in my brain. Um, but but I think that no, I, I don't I don't think watching anything. So again, the patient might say it's not it's not bothering me. I don't want to do anything about it. And I say okay, so long as you understand what's going on, mm-hmm. I'm here if you need me. And then sometimes they need me, and that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah.
0: I feel like um, here later in my career, I've learned a lot more about traumatic occlusion and how impactful that is with everything from perio to, you know, wear and recession and all of that. How much of what you do with having to take teeth out and cracked roots and that sort of thing? How much do you think that ha- that has to do with traumatic occlusion?
2: So I think that I think that traumatic occlusion plays a very large role. Um, in, in the periodontal health of teeth, right? So I think to the extent that those teeth become non-salvageable, that yields more, you know, oral surgery. But at the same time, I think a lot of that is periodontal. Like I think a lot of period, like there's a, I see a lot of, isolated, uh, recession or, you know, mobility or whatever it is. And it's either some sort of like parafunctional habit, habitual or, 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 uh, traumatic occlusion. And I think that most of those things, if they're addressed can be like halted. And so I, I it, it's, it doesn't really rise, you know, to, to me doing really anything for it unless it's been missed completely. And, Got
0: it. and you know, that's my feeling. And I have to ask this because I feel like there's a big conversation happening right now. I want to get your thoughts on chlorhexidine versus other types of rinses.
2: Yeah, so chlorhexidine has been shown uh, to be negative on the fibroblast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, uh, there is, I, I don't like chlorhexidine. There are other rinses out there but I would not be the, the proper person to really speak on them because the the science behind them, I think they're also more of a perio mindset type of thing. Right. Um, but I know definitively, I, I used to, I used to prescribe chlorhexidine and Paradex after every extraction bone graft, um, but I, I don't anymore at all. Uh, so I think that Paradex, and, and again, I'm not disparaging the benefits of chlorhexidine but Mm -hmm. i do it's been proven scientifically that it's it has some negative effects so i don't use it
1: yeah inhibits fiber so that's important it's really important for us obviously for trying to um regain like a long junctional epithelium especially after scaling you know like fibroblasts and the sharpies fibers and everything that's trying to pseudo reattach to the root surface of the tooth like it's been a big conversation i guess specifically in hygiene more recently but yeah we're not we don't Love chlorhexidine. We're not big proponents either for that same reason. And and like conversely, we like some of the research on um, tetracyclines, like doxycycline, minocycline, in regards to
2: anti-inflammatory, low, low dose anti-inflammatory. Right. right. Yeah, that stuff has been. By the way, there's been data on that for easily twenty five years. Yeah. Um, and and you know it's difficult. Although, if we're thinking that the mindset set is shifting, that maybe it becomes easier, it's difficult for a patient to think to themselves. I'm going to be taking a low dose doxycycline, minocycline, whatever, for my periodontal disease, because it's just such a crazy concept to take a systemic medication on a daily basis for for what they perceive as like their gums are swollen, right? So, but if you yes, I mean, there's there's tons of great data on the anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, in that, plus they think they're taking an antibiotic, which right. at those doses it's not functionally that. But yeah, I mean, I yes, a hundred percent. Or
1: and even sites specifically, like even orally, such as like we use vibramycin, which is like a doxycycline suspension in periodontal trays. So we use like these oxygenating like periodontal trays to treat our patients and and like arrestin and that sort of thing and supposed like studies that it uh, increases or enhances like osteoblastic function or whatever, like, and I don't know if it's significant enough really at this point, or if there's enough research on it to say like, Oh yeah, definitely. Or no, definitely. I haven't read enough about it, honestly,
0: yeah. but
1: I just think that it looks promising on multiple like levels, like the tetracycline family just looks good in regards to peri-health on multiple levels, especially versus chlorhexidine. And I've read like a couple studies about doxycycline when treated with chlorhexidine and on, you know, in a, a site specific way. So it's just interesting. We wanted your opinion
0: on that. Yeah. But can and we ask Oh, I was going to say with that, obviously you don't need to go into all the options out there, but do you have a go-to now for your post-surgical rents? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah.
2: I've been looking into, um, and again, I just like no, yeah, yeah. nothing like yeah. that. I've been looking into this thing called smart mouth. I hate the name, uh, of it because I think it's like just not great. Uh, but I do, I do think that they have a, uh, a good product and this, there's science behind it, and they don't have the anti fibroblast concept, and so yeah, I think I, yes, I've been using that to some degree, um, but I haven't been maybe I should be, but I haven't really been like noting the differences between just like salt water rinsing or or this. I honestly, you know, I don't I don't really look at it that way. I see my patients a couple of weeks after I do the extraction bone graft. The soft tissue generally heals well. I use a membrane. Um, depending on what I'm doing, different membranes. And, and, and thankfully, you know, thankfully, I don't want to make, I don't want to make light of it, but thankfully you know, the gums heal. Right. So for the most part, you take a tooth out, you're doing a bone graft, you're putting a membrane, the patient's generally healthy. They, they have a good oral hygiene. The gums are going to heal. It's going to be a perfect site. We can put an implant in and and that's what it, that's what it is. You know,
1: yeah, it's, anecdotally, anecdotally, it's hard to tell too. Exactly. Good to see the research.
2: Yeah.
1: Cool. Um, can we ask you, um, actually, actually I wanted to point something out. Um, did you know, are you aware that we were, that we recently uh, released a book?
2: I was not aware.
1: Okay, we, re- we re- I am re- not aware. We recently released, Trees and I just released our book, uh, Bulletproof Hygiene. And this, believe it or not, is a plug, but you'll see where we're going with this. It's not actually just a plug. Uh, well, Bulletproof Hygiene, the Guide for Finding Fulfillment Through Purposeful Profitable Hygiene. And on page fifty nine, we talk about you.
2: <laughs> really, I love that. I this
1: love is our yeah, a
0: celebrity.
1: There. Yes, our favorite insta insta famous uh, dental guy. Um, we wrote for for an example of social media done well in the dental industry. Check out at Bloody Guy on Instagram. He created curiosity for his audience by choosing to remain anonymous and never showing his face until recently. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon who has posted relatable pictures and videos about four times per week since 2015. We didn't do any stalking there, no stalking at all. <laughs> um, he tailors his posts to a clearly targeted, targeted audience of dental professionals, and his posts are relatively predictable, yet exciting, witty, and humble.
2: Thank you very much. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, but- like, I would love a copy. I will plug that book. You send me that stuff. I will like put it out there. I mean, that where, where can we get the book? Amazon? Uh, uh,
1: on Amazon. Yeah. On Amazon. Right. Yeah. Yes, for I love
2: sure. it. I love it.
1: So given your extensive like success on social media, you know, I hate to just ask about like, what advice would you give? Cause, cause I know it's not a one size fits all thing, but like I know that you've spoken to just being authentic and putting it out there, like in regards to themes and consistency and that sort of thing, is there any advice that you could give to, uh, dental providers looking to grow their, you know, connectedness on social media with with patients or with other providers. Like, what, what, like, little tips could you give to make them more successful in trying to grow their presence on social media?
2: So, I'll, I'll speak to what I, what Bloody Tooth Guy is not at first, and then I'll, I'll speak to kind of the way I see social media in general. Um, I think that a lot of people are looking to figure out how to grow their audiences. Uh, in their practices, right? So I think that people think that there's some sort of correlation between build a strong social media platform and that will yield more success. Um, I look at it the other way. I think that it supports who you are. It supports what you're doing. It's an element of what you need to do in the current world. Um, But it definitely is not something where like, you know, if you have 3000 followers, versus eight thousand followers that you're going to have a more successful practice or not i don't think that there's any correlation maybe there is but i don't think so i think with that type of stuff like kind of buyer beware there's a lot of there are a lot of um companies out there uh organizations whatever that will that will try to feed your feed uh with kind of stock images and, and and digital stuff and it literally is like so obvious and it doesn't work and it's not at all good. Even in my world, we'll put some stuff out there for like the Riverside Old Surgery um, mm-hmm. Instagram account and the digital images of like, you know, happy Thanksgiving or whatever. Never, ever, ever play well. It's all about like what goes on, what separates your office, what's your differentiator. So really pictures and videos of the people that they actually can meet in the audi- in the uh, offices mm-hmm are so much more engaging. So, you know, group pictures, group little things and stuff like that. We don't do any TikTok or stuff like that. I know that's kind of where it's going. I don't, no one wants to see me doing a stupid dance. Um, not that that's bad, it's just not for me. Um, but like, you know, the, the, the many women who work for me will do stuff like that. And, and I, think that, um, I think that it's great, right? Uh, so I think that building your professional Instagram, uh, needs to be uh, needs to show who you are, it needs to showcase what's going on in your office. Not so much like the outward holiday and National Donut Day, which of course has to be there, but it's certainly only a small part of it. If you're trying to build an account uh, or a social media presence uh, kind of goes against what I'm about to say. Like you can't really be trying to. You have to be you and people will find you. Uh, of course you want to put yourself out there, right? You want to do the hashtagging and all these kinds of things and tag other accounts and interact with other accounts and all the things that everybody knows what they need to do. But there are a lot of guys out there, uh, uh, accounts out there that are like kind of copycat of different accounts
0: yeah. and it doesn't
2: work. It just doesn't work. What makes you different? Like, so if you know uh PNW OMS Ben Johnson out in yeah. Northern uh, in Seattle, Ben is amazing at what he does. We do the same things with our hands, but he the way he interacts with his audience and the little things that he does are witty and smart and great, and they define his account. And that's why he has built a successful account. Surgical Gourmet in Orange County, California. He does great oral surgery, but he also really, he's an amazing chef. So that account, you, Is shows who he is. And that's why people follow him. Not because he takes pictures of bloody teeth or sets them up nice or anything like that. We all do the same thing day to day, but we bring something completely different to the table that people enjoy about us. Um, Some people love me. I assume some people hate me. I get some negative comments, like Mm -hmm. makes no sense to spend time doing that, but I do. Um, And so I think... I think really, again, and, and, I, and I say the same kinds of stuff all, all the time, the authenticity, but the real authenticity. Authenticity is a word that is often used by people who are being inauthentic. Right. But I really do think being authentically you will yield the people who, the right eyes on you. Social media is really just kind of a microcosm of the world. People, and as you get older, you feel this way more comfortably. People are going to like you or they are not going to like you. Right. And right. It, it's, it's, I'm not right for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what it is. I mean, that's kind of the way I don't know that I was remotely answering your question. Yes, no. tangential thinking. A
1: hundred percent you did, because I think that that's so counterintuitive for most people. And most people think they have to have some system or they have to occur a certain way or they have to copycat someone else who's being successful, even if that's not authentically them. And yeah, I think authenticity is like one of those words that's kind of like growth mindset where everyone's like, you know, if you don't have a growth mindset, you're like, oh yeah, growth mindset, which is ironic because we talk a lot about growth mindset, (laughs) but- Yes. No, I, I agree. And I think that that's like where the true connectivity comes from. And that's how you build the community and, you know, the, the shortcuts and, you know, I know people can buy followers. That's usually not the
0: best. that's, not, that's,
1: that's actually a, an Instagram killer because I know Instagram tracks certain things and kind of like you buy followers, but none of them are engaging. Well, they, you're shown even fewer of your followers and like that sort of thing. So that's, right. that's not, I've learned a lot about that because a good friend of mine has a million followers on Instagram and she was in the Instagram. She's a, she's an Insta yogi. It's a, at beach yoga girl, Carrie Verna. Um, And I I, where she was a good friend of mine. She was a mentor of mine a long time ago, but I picked her brain about all of this stuff. And she was just, you know, giving me the, the download about people, the things they do right, the things they do wrong, what she recommends, she doesn't recommend kind of thing. And it it was exactly what you're talking about. Just engagement and authenticity and building your, it it is your brand, but it is really just you, you know, Just you, has, being you, you know,
2: kind of thing, so it has to be. Yeah, I think, I think, in order for you to have a sustainable anything, it has to be real. You know, you, you could try in your business, your life, your marriage, your, whatever it is. If, if it's not real, it's not sustainable. I mean, you right. could do anything like you could do it, but if you really want to do it long term and where it's like effortless forever mm-hmm. and growing. It has to be real, otherwise it's like a miserable existence. Like, yeah,
1: you know. totally. Yeah, yeah, I think. I, I sorry, Teresa. I just no want to like so excited right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the natural like law of like attraction too, and the people liking you or not liking you, and you're not for everyone. I think is such like a a great acceptance to have and good place to be. And I feel like I'm constantly like evolving and we're all constantly evolving in that direction. So that's really cool to hear you say that too. Sorry, Teresa, go ahead.
0: Oh, you're good. I was just going to say, as we wrap this up, I want to uh, make the point and I love this about your Instagram and it's almost comical to me because you oscillate between disgusting bloody teeth and all the good foods that you love to eat. Yeah. Yes, so clearly it looks like you might be a foodie. Little um, bit. Brittany, I want to know what you think the official food of dentistry should be.
2: The official food of dentistry for me would be sushi. <laughs> 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 to me, that, to me, that's the most sensible, uh, or even maybe like some sort of like tartar, raw fish, okay. but definitely, definitely, uh, something in that.
0: In that nice. And you. that goes really well with bloody teeth. So perfect.
2: It does. Sometimes okay. you can't tell if it's a piece of tuna or a bloody tooth.
1: Or or a piece of gum tissue. That's you know, true. That, that tartar, you yes. can gum it. You can eat it after surgery. It's, yeah, it's totally perfect. the official it's, it's it's Perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> tartar is just tartar is the way. It's it is the thing. There you go. Um, if 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 some of our hygienists or general practitioners or anyone who's listening right now wants to connect with you um, or get in on some of the ways that you you've been educating and sharing um, what you know with hygienists and with. Providers, how can they connect with you best? What's the easiest way to connect with you to kind of learn more or to get in on some of those educational um, things you offer?
2: So, the, be- the best way to contact me is through email bloodytoothguy at gmail.com is my bloodytoothguy email. Mm-hmm. I'm also at jma at com. Um, if you email jma at dot com, I can through that, then you get you more in touch with uh, the people who handle the actual hardcore continuing education stuff. I have a lot of people who come and shadow me and observe me. And um, I love that. I think that that's really, it's great. I think to really come in and see what I do on a day-to-day basis. There's, there's so much about what a lot of people talk to me about oral surgery. And of course I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon uh, and then the Instagram side of things, but there is so much that I, um, can offer in terms of just uh, how uh, patient communication and just how to interact with human beings on a day-to-day basis. Of course, the building of a specialty practice and all of these things that are uh, kind of peripherally in my life, they're central to my life. But basically, I, I, have, I really feel very, very fortunate to be in a position where I can share all this stuff. So anyone who wants to come and observe, shadow, whatever, better to go to JMA com if you want to just kind of talk about merch, you know, at gmail.com, whatever it is.
1: Okay. I was just about to ask you. Thank you. Okay. So bloodytoothguy.com, we can get merch because I'm pretty eager to get. Um...
2: So, so this is the craziness, right? So you would think that I would have that totally worked out, and right? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Every single day people ask me like, where can I get that? Where can I get that? I, it's not, done yet and it's not done because I don't have the bandwidth because I'm doing so much like and again not more than anyone else but like you know I'm not a guy who, like a lot of guys who are out there doing what I do they're talking about stuff they, they provide CE and stuff they're not actually doing it day right. to day um, so I'm actually doing patient care four to four and a half days a week plus I run the business of right. 11 offices plus I do bloody tooth guy again it's a lot, but it's, it's the life I've chosen, but I should be able to put some merch on a website and actually do it. I just, I just can't, I can't figure it out yet. Not that I can't figure it out. I just can't. So soon I say, I mean, I buy, I have, you don't understand how much merch I have. I have probably an OR filled with like surgical caps, sweatshirts, hats, sweatpants, pins. I've just, I buy them with the intent of selling them or distributing them, but it just they just sit there because i don't have the time to do it well, so we can
1: take at least two hoodies off your hands
2: all right that's a done deal yes. <laughs> send me send me a book i'll send you guys hoodies perfect
0: perfect well in the vein of you not having a ton of time we really want to thank you for yours it has meant a lot to us this has been really valuable and we have really appreciated the collaboration and the connection it's, it's awesome thank you yes right.
1: thank you sincerely thanks so much for being here we know that your time is valuable and thanks for being here with us on a weekend and we can't wait to see what you do in the future and how you continue to grow and evolve and be on this journey with you, hopefully.
2: That's great. I love it. Best of luck to you guys. Really, really nice to meet you. I, I wish you like all the success in the world, I have no doubt. Uh, and uh, please really send me that book. And yeah, I'll it's it coming. It. All right. No, done. Have nice an coming. awesome weekend. Really nice to meet you both. You
1: nice too. to meet you too. Take Thank you. care. Bye,
0: everybody have a great week. Bye.